1 Peter 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to start uh, by sharing with you guys a, a story, a pretty rad story that I, I read a while back. Uh, so this happened in the 70s, all right? So in the 70s, there was this German tourist, all right? I can't remember his name, uh, so let's just say his name is Tom with a T-H, all right? Seems like a pretty German name, Tom with a T-H, right? And so his name is Tom, and this guy, this German tourist named Tom, he spoke no English, like, at all. And he was traveling uh, from Germany to San Francisco in his first trip ever to the U.S. And his plane ends up having this really long stopover to refuel uh, in this small city called uh, Bangor in Maine. How many of you have heard of Bangor? Wow, way more people than I thought. Um, but it's a small town, right? It's, it's, it's not that big uh, in, in Maine. And uh, because of this long layover, they decided they were, they were going to let people uh, off the plane for a, a, a little while. And unfortunately... Because Tom didn't understand the announcement, he thought he arrived in California. And so he goes through customs, he leaves the airport, and poor Tom starts sightseeing around what he thought was San Francisco, but it was actually Bangor, Maine. You know what's amazing about that? Is this went on for days. Right? Like he was there for a few days until some stranger he met finally kind of figured out what was going on, realized the mistake. And they ended up, like, the town got such a kick out of it that they sent some journalists who spoke German to interview him for the local paper. And when this journalist asked him, like, hey man, so was, was there really, like, not a single moment where you suspected that you might not be in San Francisco? Was there really not a single moment where you thought, hey, this might not be, the, like, the great uh, city in the Golden State that I thought it was? <coughs> and, and he responded, he's like, yeah, when I, when I realized, when I saw the bridge and thought it was a little bit smaller than, than I thought it would be. Um, I love that story. I love that story, because what, what, what Tom needed was a reality check, right? He desperately needed the reality check. Like, I, I like to picture him as, as Oaken, that huge uh, Scandinavian dude in Frozen, right? I just picture him around, like, walking around with, like, suspenders and these short shorts and this, uh, this tiny camera hanging around his broad shoulders, right? And this guy, uh, I just imagine him walking around Bangor, Maine, and thinking, like, man, he needs a reality check. He has no idea that he's not in San Francisco. He needed to get in touch with ultimate reality. He wasn't sightseeing the way he intended to be, the way that he was supposed to be. Look, if your goal is to travel across an ocean to go sightseeing in San Francisco, you need to have a good grasp on your location 
to know when you're there. And in the same way, if your goal is to live with hope in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, then you need to get a good grasp of the ultimate reality that you have or that you live in in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you'll find yourself lost and without direction. And see, Peter, the apostle Peter in this book, in 1 Peter, he was writing to a group of Christians scattered all throughout the ancient Near East who were supposed to be living with resilient hope as citizens of God's kingdom. But then the pressures of life come on, the persecution from their their family, their friends, their neighbors, uh, persecution from uh, various haters of various stripes. They were getting inebriated by the things of this world that was suffocating their ability to truly grasp ultimate reality, to truly grasp the hope and the joy that is theirs in Christ. And in our text this morning, what we see specifically in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, is that Peter comes up to give them a reality check. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into these verses. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Namely, this morning, I'm grateful for the book of 1 Peter and just the ways that it has encouraged us and challenged us and and really just comforted us to grasp the resilient hope that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that if anyone here needs that reality check to just see anew or see maybe freshly for the first time or or for the first time in a while, uh, just the reality and the beauty and the goodness and the grace of your kingdom. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to, to do that, to stir that in our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So here's the reality check that Peter gives uh, on the front part of verse uh, number seven. First part of verse number seven, he says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. This is Peter's reality check. He's telling the believers, telling the Christians, uh, receiving his letter, he says, hey guys, remember, the end of all things is at hand. Now, what does he mean by that? Because normally when you see a phrase like that, the end is at hand, usually when you see a phrase like that, you picture like the crazy guy on the boardwalk with the giant sign that says the end is near, right? The aliens are coming. The shape-shifting lizard people are taking over. That's the picture you get, Right? But here's the thing, the Bible actually says that it's the person who lives like the end really is near, that's the person who's in touch with ultimate reality. That's the person who's been saved from insanity. Now, some people say, 
But, you know, this phrase, when Peter says that the end is at hand, this kind of proves that the Bible is wonky and unreliable because this was written 2,000 years ago. And so why did Peter say that the end is at hand if we're still here and waiting for Jesus to return 2,000 years later? It's a fair question to ask. Right? As a matter of fact, like we see time and time again that, that, that people who have uh, wrongly, uh, who have obsessed over and wrongly interpreted <coughs> verses like this have tried to predict. Uh, like all throughout history, you see like these groups of people who've tried to predict and say, Jesus is going to come back like by the end of the year. There's a famous, like popular Orange County pastor in, who predicted in the late 70s that by 1981, uh, that Jesus would come back, right? And all these people from his church like quit quit their jobs. The church had this like massive New New Year's Eve party uh, on December 31st, 1980. And then when the clock hit midnight, man, that wrecked people's faith. People would quit their jobs. They 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 got rid of all their stuff, uh, and they. Lost a ton of followers, and they were just a poor witness in the community because of ways that they had twisted and misinterpreted this passage. You see, Peter's point isn't to say, when he said that the end is at hand, his point wasn't to say that Jesus is coming back in his lifetime, in Peter's lifetime. His point is for them to live like he is coming back, like Jesus is coming back. Because Peter doesn't know when Jesus is coming back. Neither do we. It could be any moment, right? Like 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief that comes to rob you in the night. In other words, like you can't calendar that, right? You can't be like, Alexa, how many days until the return of Jesus, right? They're like, there's, there's no a quantifiable number for that. <laughs> Did it really? That's awesome. <clears throat> What'd she say? She said I'm having Yeah. Yeah, that's right. See, case in point. Uh, you see... I want you to think of it this way to help you understand what he means by this. God's work in history has like several different acts, right? Like acts of a play, right? Act number one, you've got creation in the fall. And then in the next act, you've got the promises, the covenant made to Abraham. And then you've got the Mosaic covenant uh, at Sinai with the Ten Commandments and, and that whole ordeal. And then you've got the Davidic covenant under King David. And then you have the coming of Jesus the inauguration of the new covenant. And then from there, you have the building of the church throughout history and the world. And see, the only act that remains is the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. The final act is what's next. It's what was next for Peter. It's what's next for us. And so Peter is telling his readers, you're in the last act of redemptive history. <laughs> this is it. All, all of human history, all of redemptive history was pointing forward to this moment, which is right around the corner. And so he still says that and means it in the truest sense of that phrase that the end of all things is at hand. 
It's like when my wife asked me to help get the kids in our minivan, get them all buckled up and ready to go because like we're running late for somewhere. And when I've got the kids there, right, when I've got the kids in our van buckled up and we're waiting for her to come down and my kids see their friends down at the end of the street and they say, hey, daddy, like so-and-so's like outside in front of their house. Can we run over and say hi? <coughs> my answer is no, right? I'm be like, no, because your mom is going to come down any second and then we got to go. Five minutes could go by, right? And that's plenty of time for them to, to get out and do what they want to go and say hi to their friends. And they'll be sh- like, sure enough, they'll remind me that, like, Dad, we could have gone and come back by now, right? Like, like so like you, you, you said she would be down any second, but it's been, it's been a few minutes. We could have gone there and come back. Now, was I wrong? No, I wasn't wrong to say that. Just because she didn't come down the first or second minute doesn't mean that she couldn't have, right? You don't know when, or I don't know when that she's going to come down, but I know that the end of our waiting in the van is near. And the way I'm supposed to conduct myself, the way I'm supposed to ready myself, the way I'm supposed to be prepared is for that she'll be, she'll be here any moment, and then we're going to go. And so when Peter says to them, the end is near, is at hand, he was right. When he says to us, the end is near, he's right. Jesus himself said, live as if I'll return at any moment. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case, then how is it that we should live? What what impact does this reality check have on the way we now live? If it's not to quit our jobs and just wait around, then what is it that we're supposed to do with that information? Peter answers that for us really helpfully. He clarifies what this reality check should do for us, should do for you. Uh, He he lays out four things uh, beginning in the second part of verse 7. Number one, because the end is near, because it's at hand, you should pray soberly. Pray soberly. Look at verse 7 again. Peter tells them the end of all things is at hand, therefore... Anyways, because the end is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, what's the connection between living in the last act of redemptive history and our prayer lives? The connection is, man, because we're in the last act of redemptive history, all the more all the more do we need to be aware and ready to pray. For, uh, Second Timothy, rather. Second uh, Timothy 3, cha- uh, verse 1 <coughs> says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, when Paul uses that phrase, last days, when he's writing to Timothy, it's the same idea in mind, right? Because you're in the last act of redemptive history, there will come times of difficulty, Right? Life in this final act is hard. Amen? It's embattled. There's temptation. There's hardship. There's suffering. There's this tension we feel between living in the now and the not yet and recognizing that we have the glory and the beauty of the kingdom. We have access to that right right now, yet it's not fully complete and realized yet. There's a tension there, and it's, it's hard to feel that tension as a Christian. 
So therefore, pray. Therefore, pray soberly. Now, why didn't Peter just say pray, right? Like, like why didn't he just say, hey, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, pray. Why does he say, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your praying? It's because there's a mindset that prays. There's a mindset that is willing to lean on prayer, that thinks about praying. There's a mindset that is more prone to pray and a mindset that doesn't pray. What happens to your mind, for example, when you're giving into temptation, like that list of things that we talked about last week? What happens to mind when you're giving into temptation, when you're being influenced by the enemy, by Satan? when you're carried along by worldly impulses, maybe when you're drunk or hungover or high, like what happens? Your faculties, your awareness, your ability to reason gets limited, gets hindered. You can't reason clearly, and so therefore you can't focus You can't focus on ultimate reality. Now look, that doesn't mean that there aren't some of God's good gifts that we we can't enjoy, right? And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good glass of wine, Jesus did. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a small pour of bourbon or uh, a pipe of tobacco. Like those can be good gifts of God's grace that should be enjoyed responsibly if you're going to do it. But when you drink a bottle of wine or a heavy pour of liquor or maybe stick something else in your pipe and smoke it, to distract yourself from the cares of the world, to let loose to inhibit the full use of your mind for the cheap thrill of getting drunk, getting wasted, getting high. Man, that's taking something that could have been a good gift and turning it into a false deity. It's worshiping a false god. And you're putting yourself out of touch with true reality, with ultimate reality. You're numbing yourself to ultimate reality. And look, this is a big theme in the book of 1 Peter. This is not the first time that he mentions the importance of being sober and clear-minded. It's not only here in chapter 4, but at the beginning of 1 Peter, in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, if you remember, he said, "'Therefore prepare your minds for action.'" And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, if you remember, he went on in the first several verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, just expounding on the glorious hope that the Christian has in Jesus. And then he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Get ready for action. Be sober-minded to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, man, if you want to fully grasp the hope of the gospel, the hope that you have in Jesus, you got to be sober-minded. 
You got to be sober minded. And then not only here in chapter 4, but also at the end of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, which we haven't gone through yet, but I'm just going to read this verse for you so you can see it. In 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, Peter says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Three times. In this short letter, he talks about the importance of this. It's almost like he cares a lot about this. Peter's saying, maintain the full use of your mind. Don't let it be hindered by trivial things so that you can remember hope, resilient hope, so you can participate in the work of the kingdom through prayer, so you can defeat the devil and fight sin. You need to maintain the full use of your mind to engage in these things. If you aren't self-controlled, if you aren't sober-minded, then you're numbing yourself to the hope of the gospel. You won't see it as clearly. You're diminishing the power of prayer in your life. You won't see its importance. You'll find yourself left on the chopping block for the enemy to devour. See, one of the most sobering things that Jesus taught was that there are many people who think that they know him. They think they're Christians, but in the end, he's going to tell them, I never knew you. You never really knew me. Do you know that? That's in the Bible. Jesus says that's going to happen. He says that there are plenty who think that they're in. But man, when you come to the end of the life, he's like, I'm going to tell them, like, I never knew you. You never really knew me. He says some will fall away and have no part in the kingdom. But man, if, if you're wooed by the grace of God, if you have a grasp of the ultimate reality, the hope that you have in Christ, if your mind is self-controlled and sober, you'll cling to that ultimate reality that the end of all things is at hand, that the kingdom of God is right now. There are disciples to be made in your home and in the church and in the community that God is at work and that you get to play a part in it through your prayers. And you'll be ready You'll be engaged. You'll be participating in his sovereign work and endure to the end. Second thing that Peter says happens when you grasp this, when you have this reality track, is that you, you, you begin to love earnestly. Love earnestly. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, above all... Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now remember, I want you to remember the context here. This isn't just any call for us to love one another in the church. This is a call for us to love one another because the end of all things is at hand. Now why is that important to mention? Why is that significant? Because what happens at near the end of the age. We talked about this in the last point. What, what happens near the end of the age? The Bible says that in the last days, things will be difficult. Things will be under stress. And man, when we're stressed, when we're feeling tense, are relationships harder? Absolutely. 
Relationships get harder. Christians will be tempted to pull away when things get hard from the local church because of inconvenience, because of discomfort, because of mere preferences, because relationships are just hard and sometimes awkward. It's like what Martin Gore wrote in that classic Depeche Mode song, right? People are people, so why should it be that you and I should get along so awfully? And man, we see that kind of mentality just stirring in the cultural moment that we live in right now, don't we? Now, I need you to be clear here about what what he means, about what Peter means here by, by love. When he says that love covers a multitude of sins, what does he mean by love? It's not love like this warm, fuzzy feeling. He's not talking about love in that sense, but he's, he's talking about a love that treats and considers others in a way that promotes unity and overcomes cynicism. A type of love that promotes our togetherness and overcomes the things that, that threaten to destroy our relationships. And so when he says love covers a multitude of sins, that's not Peter saying that we should ignore each other's sins. Look the other way, pretend them away. It's about enduring with one another in love, enduring with one another in spite of our sins to do the hard work of fighting for each other's holiness. I want you to check out what James, the brother of Jesus, said in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He's exhorting the Christians that he's writing to uh, to pursue this kind of unity. And he says in James 5, 19, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, In other words, they're wandering from the truth, they're engaging in sin, and someone loves them enough to go after them, to woo them, to shower grace upon them, to invite them back in a loving and welcoming way. If somebody does the hard work of bringing that person back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will, and here's the phrase, cover a multitude of sins. You see, covering a multitude of sins is about pursuing someone in a love that never gives up. Just like you cover, uh, you ever do this when you're a kid? I'm like 37 and I still do this. Like you cover a candle that's lit with a glass to snuff out the flame, right? You cover sin with love to snuff out what's keeping someone from growing in grace. Now, why why is this important to Peter? It's because the Bible teaches us that, that our willingness to repent of our own sin and pursue holiness helps prove that we're true followers of Christ. A Christian is somebody who repents, who turns from their sin, who's willing to wage war against it. It's one of the reasons that we do a prayer of confession 
Every Sunday when we gather together is because we want to remind ourselves that we are a people, that Christians are a people who confess their sins, who, who turn from their sins, who repent. Not in like this fundamentalist, like beat you over, over the head like kind of way, but in this way where it's like we're, you're being invited to drink from the fountain of life to stand in awe at the throne of grace. And so covering sins is not about excusing sin, but it's about not holding someone's sins against them. It's, it's about not having somebody's sins uh, diminish your, your view of their value, of their being, of their identity. It's a kind of love that doesn't hide sin, but that endures in order to take it away. You all have heard that, that famous uh, passage uh, from 1 Corinthians 13 about Christian love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, I'm sure you heard this read at a wedding at some point. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Question. How different would our church community look if we bled this? How different would your Christian relationships look if you bled these things? If it was just a part of who you are? How different would your witness to those outside of the church who don't yet know Jesus, how different would those relationships look if you bled these things? You see, the way of the world says, when someone rubs you the wrong way, when somebody doesn't get in line and offends you, cancel them, right? Write them off, cancel them. Who needs them anyway? Get rid of those toxic people. The gospel says, Man, as much as you can, endure in love for your brother and sister in Christ. We need them. Don't cancel them. We need them. Enduring love for your brother or sister in Christ will help them fight their sin. When you're patient and kind, when you speak truth and love, when they see how you forgive and how you care for the needs of others, man, that'll warm their hearts and draw them back to Christ. Remember, he said one another here, and so he's specifically talking about the relationships we have with one another in the church. Um, it's been a while since I've shared this story. I think, um, and plus there's like some new faces here, and uh, I think the statute of limitations on uh, sermon analogies, uh, metaphors, has passed on this one, but... Uh, you, how many of you guys remember uh, Nick Stewart, right? Uh, God bless his soul. He left us, moved to Oklahoma. <laughs> but um, Nick, one of the things I loved about Nick 
is um, in the early days of our church plant, um, he would hang out with all kinds of people. And I remember seeing him uh, this one time at uh, a coffee shop, and we just kind of caught up for a few minutes. uh, And he's like, oh, like I'm meeting with so-and-so in a few minutes. And I was like, dude, like, I didn't know you hung out with them. I didn't know you guys talked, because they're like so different from each other. Uh, And Nick was like, yeah. He's like, you know, honestly, he's like, it. When I first met this person, it was, it was really hard for us to hang out because, like, I, we're just so different. But I figured, you know, God called us to the same church. He brought us into the same community. And he must be in the same community as me for the sake of my sanctification, for the sake of my own growth in grace and in holiness. And so he's like, it's because he's so different than me. It's because he kind of bugs me and annoys me sometimes that I figure God wants to do a great work in shaping my heart through spending time with this guy. Man, I love that. That's what Peter talks about when he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Don't let trivial differences, personal preferences tear apart your unity in the church. Look, if relationships among Christians are destroyed, then a whole church can be affected by that. And our collective witness to the gospel gets tainted when we let trivial things like preferences or style or personality or politics, when we let those things divide what Christ has said, you guys are together. That taints our witness. You see, it's with the end at hand. It's because we're in the last act of redemptive history. It's with the end at hand that our unity in Christ is paramount. And so Peter says, earnestly love. Number three, number three, he says, show hospitality. Show hospitality. Because the end of all things is near, show hospitality, verse nine, to one another without grumbling. Now, what does he mean by show hospitality? Hospitality, depending on kind of your perspective on that word, it might sound like unexciting, right? Like, what do you mean hospitality? Is that like plating food, having doilies under your teacups, right? Having to open up your home and like host people all the time. When the Bible uses the word hospitality, that word hospitality, what it specifically means is having a radical love for the other or the outsider, or the person who's, who's different, the person who's considered an outsider. This means you open your life and your home to those who are different than you. You'll notice this is very much an overflow of the previous point. If you want to earnestly love others, want to love one another, you also should show hospitality towards one another without grumbling. This means that you give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle. You open your life and your home to those who have different preferences than you. You see, without this reality check, without this reality check that the end of all things is at hand, without that, 
you might be tempted to just want to stick with your people, right? People that make you feel the most comfortable, people that talk like you, have the same interests as you, participate maybe in the same sins as you do. But God's church, God's church is diverse. And that was all the more magnified in the first century when Peter was writing this, right? When Peter was writing this, there weren't a ton of churches around. And so all the more, you had the rich worshiping with the poor, the Greek worshiping with the Jew, the servants worshiping with masters, people who wouldn't naturally mix because of their social class, their ethnicity, their politics, their interests, were joined together, united together, and bonded together by the blood of the risen Jesus. Man, that picture was glorious. So Peter says, show hospitality. In other words, do life together. One of the ways this might look like for us is, look, if you're married, have a single member of the church over for dinner. That's not weird. I talk to them. They would love that. Seriously, they want to be your friends. If you're older, have a college student over. If you're extroverted, have that quiet person who kind of sits alone over. Get to know one another. Do life together. Man, we live in the most unhospitable of times. We say, if you don't line up with my ideology, is that word again, you're canceled, right? But hospitality challenges us to endure, to press on, and to press in. Hospitality is all over the scriptures. It's so important to God that when Paul lists out the qualifications for someone to serve in the office or role of pastor or elder, he says that this man must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. You see, for a man to serve as a, a leader in God's church, he has to open his life and his home and his world to those who are different than he is. You know why this is so important to the heart of God? Man, it's because God himself, God himself has been hospitable to us. Even when we were still sinners, even when we were yet his enemies, God came after us. He pursued us. He came down, he ran hard after us to bring us into his home, to adopt us into his family. He opened the door and invited us into his presence. And you and I get to demonstrate that we appreciate his hospitality towards that he, that he liberally offers us in Christ when we extend our own hospitality to those around us. Man, don't, don't miss the, the urgency of this. That as citizens of heaven, living in the last act of redemptive history, you were made for this. 
You were made to show hospitality towards one another in this way. You're living in the time, if you're a believer in the 21st century, just as the same as if you were a believer in the first century, you are living in a time when heaven and earth are colliding, when Jesus will return at any moment. And the reason that you're in the family that you were born into, that you grew up with biologically, the reason that you're in the church family that you belong to spiritually, the reason that you're in the neighborhood that you live at is to love those around you and point them to Christ. Show hospitality. And to do it, he says, without grumbling. This word grumbling here is a, is a direct uh, uh, parallel. He's comparing it to the word earnestly, earnest love in the previous verse. It's his way of saying, look, don't, don't be fake in your love and hospitality. Be real, be genuine, don't be fake. Don't smile to their face and then complain about them behind their backs. Man, I love, I love that the God of the Bible is not in the business of calling for external show. He's not in the habit of, of encouraging us to fake it till we make it. He's, he's not the kind of, of God who encourages us to put up the masks. He's not like, hey, it doesn't matter how you feel, just, just do it. No, it, it, he, he says it comes from the heart. Like, let it be genuine right? Let it be genuine. And if you're not there, man, pray for that. Ask God to soften your heart. Ask God to show you, reveal to you, remind you how hospitable he's been towards you, how gracious, how loving he's been to you. Even when you were a rebel, when you were an enemy, rebelling against his throne, he came after you. He loved you. Let that warm your heart so that the love that you show others is genuine. This is kind of what Peter's getting at when he tells us how to do that in 1 Peter 2.21 when he says, it's actually because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for us that we should follow in his footsteps. In other words, it's because he suffered for you. It's because Christ set that example for you and for me that we get to follow in his footsteps. Our love and hospitality flows out of the gospel. We don't show love and offer hospitality in order to like gain God's approval. No, it actually flows out of the overflowing approval that he lavishes on us in the gospel of Jesus. Lastly, number four, because the end is at hand, serve generously. Serve generously. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Here's what this verse is saying. He's saying, you have a gift. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given a gift to use as a good steward of God's varied grace. You have a gift to serve the church. You might be sitting here thinking like, no, I don't. That just tells me you don't know what it is yet. Let us help you figure out what that is. 
You have a gift to serve the church. It says each has received a gift. It doesn't say most. It doesn't say some. It says each. All of you have received a gift. You see, this is how God works. This is how God works. He works through the whole church, not through a select few. This is how he builds up his church. This is how he advances his kingdom. It's not about a few people who get to to be up front. It's about every member ministering with their God-given gifts for the good of the body. In the same way that right now I'm exercising what I hope to be, a spiritual gift, right, in, in preaching and teaching you guys in that same way that I hope you're being built up and encouraged in the grace of God, you have a gift too that we get to benefit from. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. In other words, if part of your ministry is, is speaking or teaching or preaching, Man, you do that as somebody who's speaking on God's behalf. And so, man, take take what you do, take your words seriously. I try to be the kind of person who doesn't take myself too seriously, but, man, when it comes to the word of God and the ministry of preaching, I labor over that. I take it very serious. So you might remember just a few months ago when we when we went over uh, our our philosophy of, uh, of of preaching here at at the church. All those bullet items. We take it seriously here. But notice he says, "Whoever speaks, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God." And so, and so he's not just talking about preachers. Otherwise, he would have said that. But he says, "Whoever speaks." And so that means when we speak to one another in conversation. And fellowship, maybe in our home groups, we should seek to speak God's word to each other, remind each other of God's promises towards us. He continues in verse 11. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You see, there are some that serve with their words that tend to serve up front, and then there are others who serve more behind the scenes. And look, it's important for you to recognize here that the gifts that God gives according to his very grace, he gives it to, to each person purely by, by his grace, but, all, but every gift is intended to be used for the building up of the church. You see, it's a mistake to think that only the people doing the public ministry are the people or that the only people doing the ministry are the people uh, with a public ministry, like in front of a microphone. Right? Again, we all have gifts. And so when Jesus ascended, when he ascended at Pentecost, uh, and the Holy Spirit came down to equip every person with gifts, those gifts were given to make sure that the church would function in a certain manner. And so sometimes we treat church like a few people that have all the influence and do all the ministry and the rest of us are consumers. And we put those few people up on a pedestal. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put the few people that get to stand on the stage on a pedestal. Man, when you do that to us, you're setting yourself up to get disappointed when you get to know me, right? I'm telling you right now, you're going to set yourself up to get, to get disappointed because, man, I'm just, 
I'm just a fellow beggar pursuing faithfulness by the grace of God, just like you. And when you do that, you're also selling yourself short. Your gifts, your resources, your time, your spiritual gifts are just as necessary for the health of this church. The Bible says that every member, every church member is in a sense a minister. And man, this is one of the things that I love about church planting. It's one of the things I love about starting new churches because, you see, somewhere along the line in our culture, we bought into this idea that ministry is only done by those with a title or a role, that to have meaningful influence amongst other Christians, to make disciples, and to leave a mark on their lives, you need a title, a role, a job description. The Bible shows us that's not the case. We all need each other. We all need each other. And church planting kind of brings that up to the surface because it's kind of all hands on deck, right? Man, some of you are like, why are we always like five to ten minutes late? Man, help us out. All hands on deck, right? Church planting brings our gifts to the surface, gives us an opportunity to know one another more personally and intimately, to serve together like a family, And so look, if you're here this morning and you serve on a team currently, if you serve on a ministry, man, I just want to say thank you for using your gifts and your time to build up the body of this church. Man, can I just encourage you that even if you don't always get the recognition, the acknowledgement, the accolades, that would be nice to receive sometimes, Your work, your faithfulness does not go wasted and is not unseen by the Lord who gave you those gifts. And so, man, if you serve on a team, can I also, now that I've encouraged you, can I, can I maybe challenge you? Take that seriously. Take that seriously. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has given you, has lavished upon you a gift according to God's grace. And Jesus is strengthening his disciples, his church, through you and through those gifts. The church will exist for all eternity. The job that you have, the projects that you've worked on, that, that, that car or that boat or that vacation home that you've saved for, I'm not knocking those things, but there's going to come a time and place at the end of all time when those things are just going to be rotting and wasting away. But the things that moths and rust don't destroy, chief among those are the saints of God. And when you use your gifts to serve and encourage the other saints in, in your local church, man, your, your investment 
lasts and echoes and reverberates on throughout eternity. We need each other. I need you. I can't, I can't do this by myself. I need you. We need each other. There's this helpful analogy I heard from um, Todd something at Watermark Church. I can't remember his last name. Um, he's a pastor at a church in, in Dallas. And he talks about how church is less like a cruise ship and more like a battleship. Not because we're waging war against the culture, right? But because our mission is defined, it's tuned in, just like a battleship. He says, if church is a cruise ship, then the kind of things you concern yourself with is, do I like the music they play in the ballroom? Do I get good service? And are the shows and activities meeting my preferences? Is it comfortable? But if church is a battleship, and the kind of questions and things that concern you are, is the ship flying the right flag? Is it fighting for a clear, noble mission worthy of investing my life in? Does this ship have a purpose, a meaning, and a mission? Does everybody have a job? And regardless, uh, regardless of how seemingly meaningless it might be, whether it's like swabbing the deck or serving in the mess hall, do they recognize that it ultimately has amazing value because it serves the others and makes the larger mission possible? Every job is tied to a greater purpose. Do the leaders of the battleship realize that they too are under authority and gladly submit to that higher authority? Those are the things that concern us if we have a battleship mentality versus a cruise ship mentality. And look, when people visit, when, when people visit our church, like I hope they feel warm and welcomed and like comfortable. But I don't want us to stay comfortable, complacent. I want us to be stretched. I want us to grow. I want us to get healthy. I want us to make a difference, not just in this generation, but in the generations to come. And for that to happen, you need to recognize and use the gifts that God has given us according to his varied grace. The passage ends with these words. He says to do these things in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the way that he ends this passage of scripture is to remind us that it's all about him. It's all about Christ. The point of all this is to give glory to God in Jesus Christ. That's the reality check that we need. That your life is not your own. It was bought with a price by the precious blood of Jesus. He, he lived, he died, he rose and ascended, preparing a home for you, and he'll return at any moment. And Peter is pulling back the curtain of our eyes so that we can see 
So we can see ultimate reality that the end of all things is at hand. Don't let yourself get lulled to sleep by distractions and preferences of this world, by the news cycle, by Netflix, by apps, to where you're no longer able to see the kingdom of God at work. And the return of the king right around the bend. Don't let yourself grow indifferent and apathetic to what God is up to right now. And look, if that's, if that's you this morning, where you feel like, like this passage has jolted you, awakened you to this reality check that you didn't even know you needed, Can I just say, like, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. This, this passage over, over this last week as I've been studying it and praying over it just has wrecked me, has challenged me. Here's my invitation to you if you're feeling the way that I have. Repent. Repent. Repent's not a dirty word like, like we sometimes treat it. It's a word when rightly understood that is rich with the grace of God. It's a word that invites us to turn from our self-destroying pride and indifference and to gaze at the beauty of the King of Kings the king who loved us, the king who loves us, who has pursued us. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he's the one who first prayed for us and prays for us right now. He's the one who earnestly loves us. He's the one who graciously served us when he hung on a cross in our place for our sins. And through the power and promise of his resurrection and ascension, he's the one who invites us home and saves us a seat at his table. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.